most podcasts start at the top, talking to the big wigs in marketing and advertising. We want to flip the story and start at the bottom. In this podcast, we're talking to the brilliant creative minds who are shaping the future of our industry. We're talking to the junior mafia in Adland. Welcome to the Junior Mafia podcast. I'm Dom Hickey, Head of Planning at DDB. And I'm Jade Hickey, Junior Planner at VMLYNR. Today we're talking to Nate Kwok from DDB about coming-of-age stories, the connection between mindfulness and strategic thinking, and what it's like to jump from client to agency side. Nate is an award-winning marketer who spent seven years client-side before making the leap to agency land. He made the shortlist for B&T's 30 Under 30 in 2018, was top dog at Miami Ad School in 2019, won gold in the Australian Khan Young Lion Awards in 2015, 2018, and 2019, and also competed with the teams in Khan for a bronze award in 2018. On top of that, he's a talented yoga instructor. In 2020, Nate started as the most zen member of our DDB planning team, <laughs> and we are super lucky to have him on board. Welcome, Nate. It's really good to be here with you today. Oh, thanks, guys. Thanks for so much for having me. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, looking forward to it. So you started seven years at ComBank, specializing in Gen Z marketing. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, I started at ComBank in 2013, which feels like an eternity ago. Um, I was on their marketing and digital program back in the day. And in my whole seven years, I did all sorts of stuff. I, I did some community management. I worked in a bit of social. Uh, I managed research projects for a little bit. But the longest stint that I had there was um, working as a student marketing manager for Convict. And, and through that, uh, I just became the bank's expert on, on Gen Z audiences, which is really, really cool. I think when we chatted about this Gen Z marketing specialist is a great title. Uh, but I also think when we chatted about that, we've had conversations about your particular curiosity for the experience of growing up. And I really love that because DDB is obviously an agency where we talk about the unchanging man. And I think that experience of growing up while uh, it's been so moved forward by technology, what people want in that stage of their life is still largely the same across different nationalities and cultures. Talk to us a bit about that and what you've learned from doing that and why yeah. it holds such a, why you're so curious about it. Yeah, um, so interesting. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like um, when we used to talk about Gen Z audiences, everyone would talk about the things that had changed, how their attitudes had changed, why they were feeling certain ways. But I kind of would always want to try and separate what is inherent to the experience of growing up that all humans have at a certain age and, and what's kind of the stuff that sits around it and that, and that kind of changes with the times. Um, and I think that what I, what I found was uh, like when people grow up, they often have more in common than... Than they, than they realize with other people. Uh, and that, that commonality just became this weird fascination where I wanted to learn as much as I could about what things people had in common um, and how things differ across countries. Uh, it, there are strange things like in Japan, for example, when people turn three years old, there's this ritual called the first errand, and that's when kids uh, get sent off by their parents just into the street to, to go and buy like a bottle of milk from the local convenience <coughs> store or something. I um, mean, they have to catch a train all by themselves, and they're like barely like half a meter tall. Um, yeah, gosh, can you even talk when you're three? Like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I count can, money? What? I can only imagine like them going up to the counter and like they've got coins in their hand mm. and they're just, they don't have no idea like what money is or, or kind of how much something is worth. But um, there's something so interesting in that cultural context anyway about like when you grow up, you're expected to do these things. Mm. Um, yeah. And then that kind of relies on 
like parents trusting the community that they live in, but at the same time, the community sort of trusting that kids will learn something from this experience, which is so important to them. But yeah, it's, it's stuff like that that's always been really interesting. I think, I know there's a movement in America, and I think it's at about 10, it's not three, three seems pretty brave, yeah. um, where people are uh, trying to get their 10 year olds to go and run errands for them. Yeah. And there was a great book I read by Jonathan Haid called The Coddling of the American Mind that talks about how we don't give kids opportunities to explore or understand independence. Mm. So I think that's pretty fascinating. I wouldn't probably let a kid free on the mean streets of New York at three. (laughs) That feels feels very brave. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but anyway, it's just been this this um, topic of curiosity. I, I love coming of age movies, and I try to find as many as I possibly can. <laughs> just something so interesting about this time of life where authors and poets really romanticise it, um, yeah. even though it's an experience that can be really shit for a lot of people. I think what is really interesting about that point is that you could probably take a slice of life. For, from any generation and the experiences that they're going through are pretty unchanged. Mm. So if you look at people between the age of 30 and 40, they're, they're doing certain things that have been pretty standard for a long time. So yeah. I, I don't take a lot of stock in um, labelling generations or uh, looking at people by generations. I think looking at the unchanged behaviour gets you to far richer insights as a planner. Totally, yeah, 100%. If, if it's interesting to you guys, there is this... Um, longitudinal study that the Australian government has run for the last 25 years mm. and it looks at people, looks at Australians um, from about their mid-teens to their mid-twenties um, to see like how are their aspirations about career um, changing, what are their attitudes to the world, like how are they feeling about their parents. It's mm. an absolutely fascinating read if you if you want to know what's changing and what's not. Um, but I used to look at that stuff all the time. Yeah, we'll definitely check that out. Yeah, we should, we should have a little... Uh, reading list for people that listen to the podcast because there's so many good references so let's, yeah let's set that up somewhere it sounds like you absolutely loved being client side and that really suited your fascination what made you flip to agency planning life what made me flip to agency planning life um that's a great question i well i can tell you what the jump has been like so far mm-hmm. um uh, it's been really really good uh, one of my favorite things is trying to figure out why people like why humans do the things that they do and why they don't do the things that they do and that seems to be such like a part of planning and I feel like it's the best job in the agency because you can take that fascination and just immerse yourself in that rabbit hole of, of stuff um, so that side has been really really awesome and um, what's motivated the switch was exactly that fascination uh, into human behavior now that you have been a planner for all of four months I think it is what have you found the most unexpected thing about the move like what was it like coming into DDB having done like quite a few years client side what 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 were the things that you were expecting and what were the things that you were really just wowed about or yeah uh great question I think like the thing that surprised me most as someone who'd spent all that time client side was how, um, I don't know, I don't want to say frustrated because that's not the right word, but but how kind of wrapped up and in my head I got about client feedback or, or ambiguous client feedback. Uh, and it's it's only happened once or twice here at DDB, but I was so surprised because I thought I'd be totally invincible to it. Like I'd spent all these years client side, I understood um, or I felt like I had seen all sorts of shades and shapes of feedback and understood the, the operational reasons why why that might come through. But strangely, when it came through, 
Um, I had to catch myself in a moment of like, what the hell is this person doing? <laughs> um, it's not so much that. It's more like, what are they trying to say? Yeah. And I, I think it's, um, as a client, like, it, it, it can be a really, really hard job. And the saying around clarity being the client's biggest challenge is completely true because so often clients are trying to keep a million people um, happy internally. And often what that means is that they're collecting feedback from people who don't really know that much about marketing and advertising mm. and how advertising works, but who think that they do. And uh, I think that that's always good to remember because as clients, the strategic part of the job is just one slice of the big pile of responsibilities that they have, which can largely be operational and, and sometimes even political. Uh, and for us as planners, the, that's something that's really important to remember because our job is to try to help them find clarity in the mess. Uh, and it's kind of our job to, to take the ambiguity that they give us and, and try to help them make sense of it because that's, that's really what they're asking us to do for them. Well, we forget, I think, that managing the agency or looking after the work that the agency do for clients is sometimes only 10% of their day mm-hmm. because it's what we live and breathe. We feel like it's a really big part. But you're right, there are so many things that you're doing client-side, a lot of stakeholder management, politics, financial reporting that takes up a lot of time. So, you know, sometimes when you catch a client, they're not focused on what you're doing. They've got a lot of other things mm-hmm. that they're trying to focus on at the same time. Yeah, 100%. So, Nate, as we discovered in the intro, you're a very impressive man. You've ended and won the Australian Young Lions three times and been on a trip to the south of France in 2019 as part of that competition where you won bronze. Can you tell us a little bit about the competition and what that experience was like? Because I'd love to hear. And how can Jade get to the south of France, I think? Yes. (laughs) Yes. How do I get there and claim it as work? Nice. That'd be great to know. Yeah, that's a very (laughs) good mission in life, I think. Um, So, I actually had never heard about Young Lions until... I entered. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with it, it's a program for under 30s in marketing and advertising. There are all sorts of different categories for print and digital and marketing and, mm-hmm. and film and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's kind of our industry's version of a hackathon. So you get given these big charity challenges to solve in a really compressed time period uh, and you, you pitch it to, to what is sometimes um, like a judging audience of 20 people, which is crazy. I had done it three times in the marketing category. The first time I did it with, um, I, I got paired up with someone random, um, Gemma Wong from the Australian Ballet, who was working there at the time, but has since gone to work uh, for Nike in London and now mm. heads up marketing at a, at a startup incubator in London. Uh, and then the second and third times I did it with um, someone I, who I knew at Combank, Jill Harmon, uh, who is absolutely amazing and now heads up marketing strategy at Google. So very, very smart people. And how it kind of works is that there are three, two, two rounds in Australia and one round globally. Uh, in Australia, you kind of do your entry um, brief, which is mm-hmm. a, a pitch or an idea that you kind of do and it's in your own time. But the really, really interesting part is uh, they give you, if you get through to that and you're on the shortlist, they give you a, a 24-hour brief to solve. Um, so in past years, it's been from Mission Australia or from, uh, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, mm-hmm. which was a very interesting brief to work on. Do you actually stay up for 24 hours or is it just Oh, it's, I think we, we we slept for maybe three hours yeah, in wow. each of those. So it's quite intense. Mm. Like you'd hire out a hotel room and you'd just use that as a base for, for working or you'd, you'd stay back at the office and figure out something like that. Um, but it is really, really interesting because you're, you're trying to compress that whole strategy and ideation process and problem-solving research process mm-hmm. into a tiny, 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 tiny window. Um, but it is a lot of fun. Uh, but the the experience of, of going to Cannes um, in 2015 and 2018 and, and 2019 was amazing. Uh, did you go 
All three years? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize yeah. that. I thought you had one trip. I was very lucky. I got three trips. Oh, wow. Yeah, so my girlfriend calls it the annual trip to Cannes, which is hilarious. <laughs> but it's one of those experiences where it doesn't matter how many times you go, it's always going to be something really interesting to discover. Mm. Uh, and, and when you were there, how it works is that there's a, there's a global round of the competition where you compete against other marketers or art directors, copywriters, whatever category you're in. Mm. Uh, you compete against them um, in another 24-hour brief. Um, but at the same time, you get to go to the festival and you've got access to the talks and you can go to the big basement where all the campaigns are lined up of work. Uh, that is just incredibly inspiring. And you can, you can choose to go to all those talks. You can choose to go to the beach and, and have, a, have a bit of time there. Um, and then if you're so inclined and you, you like parties and you, you like the kind of atmosphere, there's lots of that too. Uh, but for me, I don't drink. So it was more of a just sit there and be a bit of a book nerd thing, which was, yeah. I, I feel like either way it. would be great. Yeah. It's really <laughs> Absolutely can't go wrong. sold me. Yeah. Can you, can you talk us through one of the 24 hour challenges that you really enjoyed or had a good output? Yeah. I think one that was quite interesting was uh, an idea that we did for Movember. So this was our bronze winning idea in 2018. And basically, Movember had asked all the international teams to help them get men in their 40s who had never done Movember before to do it for the first time. The twist is that we had to use our home brands. So for us, it was we had to use the Combank brand to try and solve Movember's oh. problem. Wow. Which was interesting because what does prostate cancer and banking have in common? Not much. <laughs> um, but kind of what we landed was this sense that um, if a guy hasn't done Movember by the time that he's 40, that's usually because there's a reason. And that reason was because they were really self-conscious about not being able to grow facial hair. They felt like it made them less of a man. Mm. So we stumbled across this piece of demographic research that told us that most of these guys were now dads. And they were willing to look silly and emasculine if their kids had asked them to do it. So it was like if no one had asked them to do it and they were just doing it for themselves, they, they wouldn't. But if your, your child is asking you for a specific reason, then it, it's just a total different changer great insight so what we did was the world's first movement banknote um, and it's based on this thought that most australian banknotes have portraits on them and as combank would create this biodegradable plastic sleeve that when you place it on these banknotes you turn that portrait into a mustache supporter of movember Um, we've launched this thing around father's day which is around when movember sign up start um, we'd get kids to kind of put their little cash, uh, their, their little note into this sleeve um, and give to their dads with the backside of it being a greeting card where they can say how much um, their dad's health means to them, how much it would be sad if, if they, they were gone from their lives as a way of like, this is your first Movember. I really want you to do this. But also the cash inside is your first donation to, to mm. your first Movember. So you, you're kind of committed to, to do this thing. Uh, so we were really, really proud of that one because we made a link from prostate cancer to banking <laughs> that we didn't think we could. But, um, yeah, it, it, was, it won us bronze. We were totally flabbergasted when they told us and when they asked us to get on this really awkward little stage to collect our certificate. It was like <laughs> it was year four and at the end of year, you kind of get your little thing at the end yeah. if you've done a good job. Uh, and we just awkwardly stood on the stage but had a really good celebration afterwards. That so is amazing. So there we go, people. If you are interested in winning a marketing young lion, get in touch with Nate because he seems to have some tips on how to do it right. I'd love to change gears a bit now. One of the things that is 
pretty fascinating about you is how much work you do outside or how much work you do outside of work in practicing mindfulness and meditation and teaching yoga. And I know the DDB planning team have been the recipient of an amazing meditation class. Uh, but I'd love to know a little bit more about what links you've made between what you're learning through mindfulness and uh, how you solve and unpack problems because there were some surprising insights that you had there that I thought were really worth sharing. Yeah, I, I was quite surprised myself. I didn't realize there was such a link until I started working here. And I think it's really interesting because as a, a yoga teacher, and I'm only a baby yoga teacher, I haven't been doing it for too long, <laughs> but you often have people coming to classes because they're working out stuff. And, and maybe that stress and anxiety um, maybe they've got other stuff going on. Maybe they're just physically in pain because they sit at a desk for too long. Um, but whatever it is, everyone comes because they've got their own work to do. And when it comes to the mental stuff, um, often what I find is that um, bringing in the Eastern philosophy stuff that we learn through yoga teacher training uh, is often something that helps people a lot because it just gives people tools to reframe what they're feeling or experiencing at a time. And to take these really heady concepts that, that often appear in Western philosophy, but encourage them to try and feel it um, in the heart rather than think about it in the head. Strangely, that's been very helpful for planning uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first reason is um, in studying that Eastern philosophy, you often just stumble across these universal truths that planners talk about all the time. Um, that could be about the experience of mastery or the experience of um, feeling like um, you're whole within yourself or something. But strangely enough, also in guiding people through things like meditations, it's the same skill set as what cold researchers use for projective techniques. So if I um, am guiding people through something like what we did, Dom, which was about um, getting uh, visualising people that you love and who you're neutral with um, and who you really kind of feel a little bit of angst towards and trying to feel them all, all the same with the, with the similar warmth, uh, that's very similar to me asking uh, people about their best memories of sport and their worst memories of sport and trying to populate empty rooms with objects that symbolise that relationship. So it's, it's really, really similar. I was surprised by how similar it was. Uh, but, yeah, that, that's kind of... That's yeah, kind what of a weird. great parallel. It's not something I've ever thought of. Uh, but when you've taught through it, it actually makes so much sense. Yeah. Uh, I love that you're sort of using a bit of that in what we're doing day to day. Yeah, mm. it's interesting. Um, a campaign example that helps is uh, recently we did some work for Jump Rope for Heart here at DDB, and I can't reveal exactly where we landed, but uh, they threw us this challenge of trying to get Aussie kids interested in Jump Rope for Heart again. And what I stumbled across was a piece of childhood psychology by a guy called Eric Erickson, who basically says that at late primary school age, kids are starting to develop a sense of ego. And it's, it's a time when they're actively looking to master new skills in order to get validation from others, both in the playground and at home. So at home, that might be um, like, mom, look what I can do. You're not looking. And then on the <laughs> playground, yeah, it's like it's, it happens exactly like that. And then on the playground, that might be like, nah, I bet you can't do this. Look what I can do. Um, but uh, like... Through that, we, we kind of wanted to create something that would get kids excited about the experience of mastery, but it wouldn't have been, like, I would have only arrived at that if I had done things like yoga, where they're constantly talking about yoga as a process, no destination, about the process of mastery being something that you do for the sake of it, rather than something that you do to reach a destination or a goal. And weirdly, that same comparison that you see kids do on the playground 
it happens in yoga rooms too, where people are looking to see what other poses other people can get into and kind of like fumbling and, and sort of comparing. So it's, yeah, it's been strangely interesting, um, but good. So we need to send the planning team on yoga classes. Maybe. Maybe we'll do it upstairs. Yeah. yeah just the whole agency to see. Yeah. Can I have a guest class visit? Yeah. yeah totally. <laughs> Absolutely. And is there a campaign or piece of work that had a real influence on you, Nate? Huh. Uh, a campaign or a piece of work? I don't know if there's a specific campaign, but I, I can say that I'm really drawn to work where the agency has found this interesting unlock based on a, an ethnographic observation or, or anchored it in a piece of behavioural economics theory. But I can say that the kinds of insights that I aspire to rather than the kinds of ads are, are things where humans are, are talking about things that they, they want or need, but that they ordinarily wouldn't say out loud. Um, and I think that's a, the mark of a great insight. Um, and a couple of examples I can think of are things like the speeding one from a few years ago. Oh, uh, yeah. I always use that in teaching classes for Miami Ad School. The insight for that one I love. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, the insight is something like teenage boys fear being ridiculed by their friends more than their fear. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's so a true. really powerful insight. Yeah. And you can totally see how it leads to, like, a hand signal like yeah. this, yeah. which people won't be able to see. But that's the kind of stuff that I love. Um, and, and the other stuff that I really love is, is work that's based or problem-solving that's based in ethnographic observation because I think it reveals so much about how people live that they don't necessarily know or are conscious of. Um, and one example that I can think of is, is by, um, again, another Miami Ad School teacher, Stuart Markham, who is a coal researcher at 55.5. And he talked about a study that he did for an alcohol brand where he needed to understand why people weren't buying this certain spirit in Berlin nightclubs. Uh, so as part of his work, he made all these field trips to clubs. He went at night, he lined up, he talked to people, he watched what they Great drank. Great job. Amazing yeah. job. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but what he realised that nobody bought mixed drinks because they couldn't dance with it on the dance floor. Um, and also there was the fear of being spiked. So everyone bought these big tall drinks and long neck bottles that they could put their thumb over. Mm. And that meant they could dance around, not worry about things sloshing everywhere and feel safe in the club. Um, I, I think the output of that observation in the end was uh, that spirit brand started making mixed drinks and long neck bottles that they can sell in these clubs. But I think it's it's such small things like that where you see how people use the product in real life that can lead you to know what to do next. Mm. And sometimes it's not necessarily a campaign, but it could be something in the service of the product or experience that makes it more relevant to how people actually want to use it. Mm. Love it. Love that. I love, uh, I love work built, obviously, as a planner, mm. work built on a really groundbreaking insight because you can see it in the work as it, yeah. as it goes live. Completely, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so we've got one more question for you. Uh, yes, my favourite question to ask at the end of every week. What's the best piece of advice that you've been given since you entered the industry? Please share it with our listeners. Best piece of advice? Um, I actually think it came from a guy called David Warren, who is an amazing planner. Um, he's worked, worked all, all over the place. Um, and all around the world, but he, he was one of my teachers at Miami Ad School. Um, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, but what he said was, um, find your own way or, or style of planning and then find an agency where that style fits. Don't compromise your style of thinking because your agency wants you to do things a certain way. You'll finally, you, you'll, you'll probably end up feeling miserable. And I just really love this. Uh, and Dominic reminds me of something that you said, which was 
like agencies like churches, you've kind of got to find the one that you believe in or else you're going to be miserable. You're not going to have a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel super lucky that I'm, I'm in my early sort of years of a planning career. So I'm still developing. Some, and I, I think I've got some ideas of, of what I like. I love ethnography. I love um, behavioral economics. I love consumer psychology um, and, and sort of science-based things. But um, I honestly feel like it's such a luxury to feel like you're still a beginner and, and to watch yourself learn and do things that you didn't know you could. Um, but to have lots of smart people around who can help you guide and grow that sense of self and that style, which I think is cool. Like the, there's no bigger luxury. Oh, well, we've loved having you today, Nate. Thank you so much. Yeah, what a great conversation. Thank you. No Amazing. worries. Thanks for having me. I might take up yeah. yoga. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think we're, we're, just we're, all gonna take up, we're all going to go take up yoga. Sure. Um, thank you. Thanks for your time. No worries. Anytime.